This podcast is brought to you by eGauge Systems, advanced, affordable, and reliable energy monitoring. The eGauge is a data logger, web server, and energy meter in one device. With revenue-grade accuracy, eGauge can be used to optimize efficiency and for solar monitoring and sub-metering. Learn more at eGauge.net. For the week of July 17th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, your co-host and editor of Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. I've got two other friendly voices here you might recognize with me. Back from yet another national meeting of utility regulators, it's Catherine Hamilton, a partner with 38 North Solutions. Catherine, you're back from Dallas. How was your time at the NARUC meeting? Yeah, so it was great, except Dallas in July is probably not the optimal time of year. One day it was over 100. I'm, I'm glad to be back in D.C. Let's just say the swamp is better right now than Texas. <laughs> so I was talking to uh, Cameron Brooks of E9 Insights, who we've had on the show. He said he bumped into you, and he asked jokingly if we had any special handshakes or secret tattoos to signify that we were members of the energy gang. Don't you wish we were that cool? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That would be very cool. But since we don't really, ever, we're never in the same place, we can't shake hands. I know, but we did have an initiation process for our, all our listeners wondering. So in order to gain entry to the Energy Gang, we had to memorize Title 18, Chapter 1, Subchapter A of FERC's Code of Federal Regulations. And Catherine kicked our butts. She beat us by a day. <laughs> well, off the streets of New York and terrorizing the good people of Arizona with his solar propaganda is Jigger Shaw, the founder of Sun Edison and Jigger Shaw Consulting. Jigger, what's up in Arizona this week? I understand you are meeting with APS. Yeah, I just had an awesome conversation with APS. We talked about, you know, how I wanted to bash their head in and they hated me and we all like, you know, broke bread together. <laughs> it's funny how the public spats can get left aside at the door when you actually have internal meetings with people. It sounded like it went pretty well. Oh, it went great. It went really great. Hmm. All right. Well, we are going to move over to California for our first story and talk about how to make up for lost generation from nuclear power plants. Specifically, we're going to talk about the debate around the Songs plant in Southern California. And that's a story that gets people all riled up. Secondly, we will discuss an electricity infrastructure boondoggle in Australia our third segment will center on the exhilarating world of energy regulation here in America, which it turns out is actually becoming relatively exciting. And we will end the show by telling you something you don't know. Let's get going. In the last two years, five nuclear power plants here in the U.S. have been put on the list for closure. These plants are getting challenged from two sides. Competitive natural gas and renewables are eroding the economics of merchant projects, and technical challenges associated with age are making the plants more expensive to operate. Some are cheering the slow, creaky demise of nuclear in the U.S., but others warn that if more plants come offline, U.S. emissions are headed for a steady increase, potentially 4 to 5% over the coming years. So what are we going to do? As HR people often say, no one is irreplaceable. So is that the same for nuclear? Can we easily make up for it? We're finding that out in California right now as regulators and two large investor-owned utilities, SDG&E and SCE, 
develop a plan to replace 2,200 megawatts of nuclear power that was shut down permanently last year. The San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station, known as SONGS, leaves a carbon-free electricity gap for California to fill, a challenge particularly important for the state because of its strong carbon reduction goals. There's already been an increase in carbon pollution after the plant closed. Environmentalists are livid because SDG&E's latest proposed plan includes mostly natural gas to fill the gap, a fuel they say is volatile in cost and bad for the climate. They say regulators and utilities are underestimating what storage, demand response, building codes, and distributed generation are capable of. Nuclear proponents are rolling their eyes, saying, what did people think would happen when so much nuclear goes offline at once? So who's right? Can non-fossil-based technologies make up for the closure of plants like songs? And if so, what needs to happen on a regulatory level to make that happen? Jigger, I'm sure you have strong feelings about this. Uh, why don't you lay them on us? What do you think about the CPUC and utility plan to make up for songs there in Southern California? Well, I think the important piece, honestly, here is when you read Green Tech Media's coverage in this area, there are always a hundred you know, comments in the bottom. And the all of the comments are people fighting exactly what you've set up, which is, can solar, wind, demand response, load control, battery storage really provide people with reliable power? Or is solar and wind and that kind of stuff on the fringes and that the real power that powers our country comes from sort of nuclear, coal, natural gas baseload? And you know, I think that there's there's two angles to this. One is that there's a genuine disagreement here. There are people who very passionately believe that solar and wind and all that stuff will never, ever be useful except on the margins, maybe a little bit of peak power for the duck curve. Then there's the other p piece, which really is, I think, a bit of a conspiracy. When you think about San Diego Gas and Electric, they're one of the 10 utility companies in the United States who is by far the most progressive on storage, on demand response, on load control, working with, you know, startup companies in Israel, working with startup companies here and there, trying to test things out. They do a lot of that stuff. But when they see an ability to rate base $2 billion worth of stuff, they absolutely go back into regulated utility mode and say, we know how to get one over on the regulators here and figure out a way to rate base $2 bucks, And they're going to absolutely do that in a heartbeat. Yeah, well, Jigger, a gas plant is much easier to mortgage. If you invest in a gas plant, you've got this big, huge asset that you can mortgage. It's so much easier to get rate recovery for that or shareholder recovery than it is to get for a bunch of disaggregated demand re demand side resources. And what I find really interesting about this is this is really a planning exercise that isn't that isn't going to take place until 2022. All right, so what they're doing is they're planning, and rather than picking things that you can plan and implement very quickly, like efficiency, demand response, renewables, storage that you can that you can build quickly. They're picking something that's big, that's going to take a long time to build, that you don't know what the price and the volatility of the natural gas is by then, by 2022. Um, and, I, and I also question what the kind of the, the underlying assumptions are. One of the assumptions I know is that energy storage can't be uh, local capacity, can't serve local capacity requirements. And I just think that's not true. I think people don't know what all these, the power and the resource ability is of all these demand side resources. So isn't there a rules issue here? 
because uh, so CalISO is still developing rules to make demand response and other demand side resources valued like a traditional power plant. And as of now, they're seen as demand reductions that aren't valued as generation resources that can, say, make up for the lack of nuclear. And we are talking about uh, somewhat different regulatory tracks here, but it does have an impact on the types of technologies that they use to make up for this generation gap. And so, for example, when you look at the duck curve, for example, this dip in demand in the middle of the day that ramps up in the evening after solar generation drops off. So CalISO is really only looking at how to balance um, power generation, not, for example, voltage regulation, frequency regulation, which is an important piece of the puzzle when we consider, say, the duck curve or making up for the, the, the closure of songs. So how does that play into it? I mean, is that a big problem in terms of the requirements that these utility haves and what they procure? I mean, one of the issues is that you have um, you have sort of an old guard, I, and I you know I don't want to say that with the, because a lot of the old guard is good, but some of the decision makers in the government in California see only a power plant as a traditional generating power plant, and there are a lot of people who haven't kind of got beyond you know actually a power plant can be something that doesn't look like a traditional power plant that comes from something completely different. And I think until you get that, until you bridge that gap and are able to start seeing it not as a phone with a cord attached to a wall, but something that you can hold in your hand that's much more powerful, I think that's what's going to change them um, because, because the demand side can do just as much as the traditional you know, generation side. The frustrating thing about this entire conversation is this is exactly what Mark Farron was talking about when he wrote his exit letter um, from the CEC. Mike CPUC. Yeah, CPUC. And just for listeners, that was Mark Farron, a former commissioner who retired last year and wrote this letter that we talked about on the podcast, sort of lamenting the relationship between uh, commissioners and utilities and how utilities wanted to kill distributed generation. So when you think about all of the money that Hal Harvey, who used to be the head of Climate Works and NRDC and EDF and Vote Solar and everybody else is putting into California, this is why I'm saying that Utility 2.0 will not happen in California first because Mike Peavy has a history of giving with one hand and then giving with the other hand. When you think about the boondoggle what, that was the Sunrise Power Link, which everyone now agrees was not needed. But they built, they allowed San Diego Gas and Electric to rate base $1.9 billion for a power line that wasn't needed. And now you've got another $2 billion project that Mike PV is saying, look, I know we're screwing you on the utility of the future stuff, but here's a little bit of a freebie to give you on this side so that this is slow and steady. That's why we think, or I think, that New York is going to be the first on you know, Utility 2.0 or Massachusetts, some of the other states, and not California because they have this sort of like – and I don't know how to say it because it's not corrupt, but it's intellectually dishonest the way in which they have these conversations in front of everybody but then do these backroom deals. And just in case listeners are wondering, that background noise behind Jigger is uh, from a hotel. I believe you're in a hotel lobby somewhere, Jigger? In the Sheraton in downtown Arizona. <laughs> All right. So if you hear any background noise, you'll know why. Catherine, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was I was going to say that there's you know we're in an election cycle and um, and part of the meme out there is reliability and you know it, it becomes a 
a really hot issue when the governor can't say, I'm going to build this, this, and this to create additional reliability. Really, it's three potent, you know, three governors down the line that's going to really have to deal with it. But it comes up in a very political context. And I think that kind of just muddies the waters as well. All right. But- so let's, let's look at this 600 megawatts of gas generation. So uh, that's about the maximum amount f- of fossil fuel generation allowed by the CPUC uh, which SDG&E is planning to procure. And that kind of nudges aside this bidding process for renewables. So I know we're looking out you know, past the end of the decade here. How competitive are those demand-side technologies and renewables today in California, Jigger, versus um, what, say, a combined cycle gas plant can produce to fill in songs? So just look at this particular project, 600 megawatts, at least $2 billion, right? A normal gas plant costs something on the order of $1.20 to $1.50 a watt. So that would mean a 600 megawatt plant would be something on the order of like $750 million, $800 million. For them to say that it costs $2 billion means they have to build transmission capacity, distribution capacity to, out, to actually accommodate the load. This is a boondoggle all the way around. So now you, you ask, is battery storage at 1.3 gigawatts properly placed throughout their system more cost effective for the ratepayers than two billion dollars absolutely i mean energy efficiency you've got demand response you have low control there is no way that you can you can say in any shape or form that this is cost effective the only reason they're doing this is there is this uncertainty still with the leaders in the political realm who don't really understand power, who are saying, ah, what if this stuff doesn't work? We should hedge ourselves. But the problem with that thinking is that California is going to pay twice because they're going to pay for this power plant. And then you know damn well we're still going to get the storage and the energy efficiency and the renewables. And so when you know five or eight years comes from now, they're going to say, oh, all of these assets have suddenly become stranded costs because you guys were so successful in your other technologies and Californians will have double, double paid for that capacity. Yeah, that's an interesting point and one you've made about a number of states. And I think it goes well into our second topic about this uh, problem in Australia. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Let me push back on something, though. So there are going to be a number of gas-fired plants in California that are retired through new regulations on cooling uh, processes. And so... Uh, we could see roughly half of the megawatts of gas-fired plants in California actually retired in the coming years. So this gas could make up for some of that generation, while still we'll see hundreds of megawatts of these preferred renewable energy resources making up the other half of songs. So isn't there a needed balance here? Well, that's exactly the argument they're going to make. But I think when you look at the data coming out of you know, the Brattle Group or the data coming out of Navigant or the data coming out of other respected groups, they're all saying that this is literally the perfect storm. We're going to decommission all these assets. Four out of the last five years, we've actually used less electricity in this country than we did the previous year. That's going to continue for the next decade, even though EIA is basically lying through their teeth and telling everybody we're going to have a 1% rating uh, increase in sales every year. And Edison Electric Institute is trying to say, yes, we're going to be back to 1.5% growth. At the same time, you've got IBM saying, 
we can actually make the world more efficient just using big data. And so now they're saying we're going to save 14% of all the electricity consumption of these big box retailers and other large electricity users. We are in this perfect storm where the the confusion around all these issues is allowing utilities to have one last gasp to do these boondoggle projects and rate base them until the entire you know like show stops. Hey Jigger, isn't NRG proposing to build that gas plant? Yeah, this is an NRG. All right, so plant. NRG, uh, I mean David Crane spends most of his time talking about this disruptive demand model. So I don't I guess I see that that's a, there's a little bit of an irony there. Oh, he did exactly the same thing in New York. When you look at the Dunkirk um, coal plant that NRG owns, he's getting the state of New York to pay through the nose on converting that plant to natural gas. He got Girl Scouts to come to the Public Service Commission hearing and say, our troop won't be able to survive unless this plant stays in business. And, you know, did all this crap. At the same time, he bought Edison Mission's power plants out of bankruptcy. When you think about all of the assets in his yield co., he has, you know, something on the order of 90% of his assets in his yield co. are now thermal, and only 10% are renewable. All right, well, this is a scenario that we're going to be talking about throughout the country, right? So we've got five plants or so on the chopping block. There could be many more. So let's look at a scenario. EIA has thought about this. Uh, Brad Plumer, who's now a journalist uh, and editor at Vox.com, did a really nice analysis based on EIA data, and he looked at a scenario in which Maintenance costs for nuclear plants grow at around 3% a year, and, and uh, NRC does not extend licenses for plants that are over 60 years old. So that's clearly going to push a handful more plants offline, and that will theoretically continue to boost CO2 emissions, and according to this model, by up to 5%. So that's a very realistic scenario. Um, it's unclear what NRC is going to do about extending licenses to old plants. But without a carbon tax, for example, it's going to be very hard to economically justify keeping those plants online. And as of yet, we really haven't seen any good examples of a large number of nuclear power plants going offline and renewables and demand side technologies completely making up for the gap. So, as we deal with this situation that is clearly going to get bigger here in the U.S., and, the, and, and I'll just say that there is another report from, uh, from C2ES, this climate change think tank here in D.C., and they basically showed that the, you know, it's going to be mostly natural gas plants that make up for these closures, just like we're seeing in California. How worrisome is that to you? I don't care one way or the other because we're going to win one way or the other. I mean, that's the thing that's so stupid about this. If you build a bunch of natural gas plants, everyone from McKinsey to Navigant has said it's going to raise rates by 5% a year every year for the next two decades. In California, the dirty little secret is that 80% of all of their rate increases have come from natural gas, right? So, so whether it's integrating natural gas plants, building new natural gas plants, or the price volatility of natural gas itself. Same thing's true with the Northeast. They blame solar and wind because it's easier, but they do that. Who cares? Basically, if they're going down the pathway that they're going down now, poor people and, and elderly are going to get negatively affected, and our stuff's going to be super cost-effective. If they actually switch to us prematurely, then we're going to actually be able to or earlier, we're going to be able to actually stave off that rate increase and make it more like a 3% rate increase per year instead of a 5% rate increase per year. Either way, we win. 
One is way more painful. One is way more customer friendly. So we win either way. It's just about how much pain we want to experience as a country. Well, 100 nuclear reactors left in this country. This conversation is not over. A lot of considerations there for filling in the gap. My, my guess is that we're going to see a number of plants closed down in the coming years. And I, I think the big question for some in nuclear advocates is whether or not these plants really should shut down. You know, I, I've talked to some folks who are in support of keeping songs open, and they said that, like, these vibration issues caused by tube wear um, – were very fixable issues and that it was really the lawsuits and legal costs that prevented the plant from going back online and and producing electricity. So there's always that consideration as well as we look at the plants that are over 40, 50, 60 years old. Okay, I want to take a break here to recognize our sponsor, E-Gage Systems, which is a manufacturer of next-generation energy meters. By combining a revenue-grade energy meter, a data logger, and web server into one fully integrated device – eGauge provides real-time access to second-by-second data presented on a user-friendly interface. eGauge is an ideal solution to monitor and view as many as 12 circuits, all with no ongoing fees. Applications for the eGauge meter include solar generation and building demand, sub-metering, performance contracts, lead projects, and net-zero buildings. Uh, And those can apply to a wide range of industry professionals. If you're a solar installer, a portfolio manager, investor, building management professional, HVAC contractor, data aggregator, or an energy software provider, the eGauge meter is your device. Measure every moment with eGauge. To learn more, go to www.egauge.net. On to our second topic. How did Australia's utilities spend $20 billion on power infrastructure that allegedly wasn't needed? That's what regulators, journalists, and consumers are now asking after the country's electricity rates have risen by up to 60% in some regions and utility profits have soared. In its latest edition, the Australian magazine The Monthly featured a damning article examining how the country's utilities were allowed to overinvest in grid upgrades that weren't needed, reap the profits, and pass on the costs to consumers. Over the last five years, uh, electricity rates in Australia have risen at nearly four times the rate of inflation, according to data from the country's Bureau of Statistics. So what caused that price surge? Was it the evil carbon tax or those dreaded solar photovoltaics? No and no. Australia's Treasury says the carbon tax, which is actually being repealed, only makes up about 9% of a consumer's bill, and renewable energy targets only make up about 5%. It's network charges that are the real reason, accounting for 51% of consumers' bills in Australia. And those charges rose dramatically after a $45 billion spending bonanza on new transmission and distribution infrastructure to meet projected demand, roughly half of which according to this story and other reports, was not needed at all. So this is a very compelling, if not enraging, story. And I'm actually embarrassed to say that I didn't know the extent of the problem until I read this magazine piece. Um, Jigger, since you sent this piece to us and wanted to talk about it, I'd love for you to provide some more context here about what happened in, in the country. What here is the big story for you? So I think what's fascinating to me is how how everyone's brain works and and how we got into this situation in the first place. You know, I mean, Australia was moving towards carbon regulation and figuring out how to get more renewables on the grid, more stuff on the grid. 
the the grid operators with the support of all of the environmental groups which is exactly what we have in the US too said we need to build 20 billion dollars of upgrades to be able to handle all of this renewables and energy efficiency and all this other stuff and then because utility companies actually have this sort of you know triple failure mentality where they have to actually make sure that their grid is so robust that it actually has safety factors and everything else in there. They use very conservative assumptions in terms of the effectiveness of energy efficiency, et cetera. And so they made the decision to build the, the capacity. And just to put this in perspective, Australia uses less power than the entire state of California, right? The state of California's peak load is around 60,000 megawatts. Australia's is more like 35,000 megawatts. And Australia has 23 million people. California has got about 33 million people. And so this is literally, think California when you're thinking this. Now they build all this stuff and they say, you know, people are going to use more power. We've got the mining sector. We've got all this other stuff. The Chinese decide to buy less coal from the Australians. The mining sector uses less power. Everyone and their mother starts putting in solar. So they have 2 million solar homes in Australia right now. Put that in perspective for you, California has less than 400,000 solar homes in California, right? So they have five times more, and on a per capita basis, probably seven times more. And so now, peak demand in the, both the summer and the winter have fallen by 10% and 14% respectively since 2008. They're using less power today, so all of the the growth in the electricity sales that they were going to use to actually subsidize and to pay for all this infrastructure didn't materialize. And so now, mm -hmm. at the same time, wholesale power prices have gone down by 50% in Australia. So wholesale power prices have gone down by 50%, everything else getting, getting you know, crap load more expensive, and everyone's like, how did we get here? And it's exactly the same conversation we're having in Germany, the exact same conversation we're having in the United States right now. Well, and there was a unique regulatory piece to this uh, that I think is important to mention. So the, one of the enabling factors was the change to the oversight process there in Australia. And the article describes it in pretty good detail. Um, and it was quite enlightening for me. I had sort of known pieces of the story, but uh, they put it together very well. So traditionally... The utilities there, which they call networks, were regulated um, by more than a dozen independent bodies. And so in 2004 or 2005, Prime Minister John Howard tried to consolidate oversight, and he created uh, a central federal regulator called the AER, or the Australian Energy Regulator. Seems very reasonable. It was designed to reduce complexity, and that's something we can all get behind. Uh, the problem, however, was that states were put in charge of of writing the rules for the local network companies that were owned, many of which were owned by those states. And so the federal regulator would simply enforce the rules that the states came up with. So in practice, there was, there was very little oversight of the relationship between the states and the state-owned utilities, which were mostly interested in developing more infrastructure and getting compensated for it. And so that's exactly what they did. And a lot of these projects were, as you said, Jigger, based on the false premise that demand would continue to rise. And as we've seen in Australia, it's fallen every year since 2009 when the networks uh, began this spending spree. 
Yeah, it sounded like uh, one of the consumer advocates said it was like putting Dracula in charge of the blood bank. Um, this whole story read to me like the Real Housewives of New South Wales, where you know there were there were people <laughs> who were exchanging awesome. nights with prostitutes for dinners with energy executives who were then you know um, cavorting with property developers who were convicted of murder. It was insane. Um, but um, one thing, Jigger, I wanted to ask you was you know I, I picture all these transmission lines and and certainly all these um all this property lining the pockets of these corrupt people these politicians but i also wonder if at the same time this must have created an enormous number of jobs and if those jobs with all those people building all those transmission lines didn't in fact help reinforce the politicians because they would be supportive it's exactly what's happened and it's exactly why the environmental groups broadly went along with it I mean, even in the United States, if you talk to NRDC's electricity desk right now, they would say to you that instead of doing distributed generation, they would love to build massive HVDC, high-voltage DC lines, you know, power the entire country with solar power from Arizona and wind from the, the center of the country. We actually have entire reports that DOE has written to do exactly that. Australia basically said, well, we should try to do that. And what ends up happening is is that you end up with the law of big numbers. And and this time, it didn't actually go the way of stuff just getting swept under the rug. It ended up hurting a lot of poor people. I think one of the big takeaways here for me is the point that I've already made. And that is the carbon tax did have a role to play on an increase in consumers' bill bills, but it was a fraction of what those – expanded network charges were. And when you look at DG, according to the Treasury in Australia, it made up only 5% of consumers' bills. And we have heard so much coming out of Australia about how carbon pricing is going to destroy the economy. And this shows categorically that that is false. And it was the construction bonanza pushed by the utilities and the local regulators that caused the problem. And now consumers are holding the bag. Well, that's right. And, you know, I think like New York City, for instance, is a great example. The wholesale prices in New York City have basically been flat since 2000. Their network transmission and distribution charges have gone up by about like 65 to 70 percent. That's basically the entirety of all the rate increases in New York City since 2000. You know, there are some real consequences to this, too. And uh, apparently there are lots of disconnections happening uh, throughout Australia and I think disconnections have risen by about 25% by 2012 from people either leaving the grid voluntarily or getting their service disconnected because they can't pay for their bills. That's a huge problem. And, of course, we've seen a couple million solar systems installed in Australia. Is it 2 million or 1 million, Jigger? There are 2 million, two million. solar home systems now. I just talked to my friend Mark Twidel, who I used to work with at BP, and he's the head of the Australian Solar Institute. 2 million now. Wow, incredible. And so this is a point where you see a lot of people disconnecting from service, uh, rates going up by between 40 and 60% in some regions, and millions of solar systems being deployed. I think it's premature to talk about the utility death spiral, but those are the conditions that get put into place that cause people to defect from the grid or reduce their services drastically from the utility. This, to me, is that ecosystem that puts in place the demise of the utility that we've been talking about. It's never too late 
or too early to call for the utility death spiral. <laughs> utility death spiral today, utility death spiral tomorrow, utility death spiral forever. As he walks back into the next set of meetings with Arizona Public Service. That's right. <laughs> I'm not sure if we can top a bombshell regulatory story like the one in Australia, but let's see if Catherine's got anything up her sleeve for the third segment. She was just in Dallas for the latest national gathering of electricity regulators and has gathered some intel for us to talk about. Catherine, we've discussed NARUC meetings a couple times already on this show. Was there anything different coming out of this latest meeting? We all know how notoriously slow things move in the utility space. Was there any string, anything interesting there in Dallas that was different? Okay, other than having to sit all afternoon in a room where I could hear the bar behind me watching the final World Cup match. Uh, Wait. <laughs> otherwise, it was really exciting. Why weren't you there um, watching were, the game yeah, with them? Yeah, exactly. What were you doing? I was listening to the disruptors, which, by the way, were very interesting. So I'm a geek. What can I say? Um, I actually, I felt like the tone was different. And I don't know if it was because of the sessions I chose to attend. But, but in fact, the sessions I attend were either the plenaries or um, the electricity committee, which which generally had packed, packed rooms. Um, so I feel like a lot of people were hearing a lot of these same storylines. Now, you know, whereas it's been previously, you know, the, the do you th- they haven't talked about the utility death spiral as much as sort of this kind of nebulous, misty threat to the utilities. This time, it was much more of an inevitability. It was much more of a, all right, this stuff is happening. What the heck are we going to do? And people are already doing things. Um, so everything from you know discussions on what happens with demand response, with Order 745, with the court decision, and what does that mean for everybody else, um, to sort of what are the disruptors doing? I mean, Audrey Zibelman has changed the game for utility regulators um, to the EPA saying, all right, here are your targets and how are you going to meet them and what are you going to use to meet them to then the climate issues and having the risky business folks, uh, Matthew Lewis coming in and talking about what's happening in climate. All of this kind of wove the story together uh, and this narrative of this stuff is happening. We have to do something. And look, there's all, there are all these really interesting disruptors out there who are really starting to play yeah. in a big way. So it was it was fascinating. It was much more interesting than any other Nehru conference I've ever gone to. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I was I'm a little still- skeptical when you wanted to talk about Nehru again because we've had those conversations. But since the, f- the last meeting, I think it was in February here in D.C., we have seen the New York decision, the, the, the rev process underway. We've seen Massachusetts attempt to do the same thing with its utilities. Minnesota is putting together an early stage process, that risky business report, the EPA regulations in June. There are all these factors that have uh, completely changed things. I'm still stuck on the fact that they decided to put the disruptors against the World Cup game so that nobody would listen to the disruptors. <laughs> oh, no. There was standing room only. And uh, there, there's a very interesting uh, guy, Scott Hempling, who's an attorney and knows a lot about FERC. And he's, uh, you know, he's a little edgy. And he was talking about market-based rates and how you know, if demand response is not allowed to participate in market-based rates, then they are no longer just and reasonable. And if they're no longer just and reasonable, then – 
the argument goes that then generators can also not participate because you can only participate in market-based rates if they're considered just and reasonable and if they're open to competition. So what that would mean is like the generators would also be kicked out of the market. So the whole thing was really interesting and made people really kind of stop and think. Um, and there was one panel, there were a couple of panels, Modern Utility, Industry Solutions, Value of Solar, where you had like Carl Rabago from PACE, you had um, Regulatory Assistance Project, you had folks from Minnesota, folks from Austin talking about the value of solar, and then you had Duke Energy. And I felt sorry for the guy from Duke because he was just, you know, he was stuck in the old model. And they're trying and he kept saying, well, I think you need to value everything. You need to consider it's not just the value of solar. That's just a, you know, that's just an incentive for solar. We need to consider the value of everything. And, and at some point, somebody's going to say, and I think Audrey Zibelman is doing exactly that. Okay, what is the value of, of everything? And, and let's really compare them and see who wins. Another one of my axioms is, like, you know, Duke Energy feeling uncomfortable is never a problem. Let's be honest <laughs> about that. They make us feel uncomfortable every day of the week. But um, but look, I mean, I think that this this thing that's happening and this conversation that's happening, I really do think we have to give credit where credit's due on EPA. The bottom line is every one of these people has to meet the compliance plan by mid-2016. That is a very, very fast time frame for the regulatory process. Every one of these people now has to be forced to have this conversation, and that's pretty damn cool. I think on, on the side of Audrey, one of the things that I think is fascinating is I started my career during the huge conversations around deregulation in the late 90s. We are not spending the amount of money that we spent during the late 90s around deregulation. I think that this EPA policy, as well as Audrey's work in New York, is finally going to force utilities and all of their their um, vendors to pay hundreds of millions of dollars to KPMG, 38 North Solutions, McKinsey, mm-hmm. others, to actually finally figure this out. Well, what's interesting about um, EPA also is that, you know, they've given so much flexibility to the states. They say, all right, here's your here's your cap. It's totally reasonable. You, you could eat, make, make this easily. Some of you are almost already there. And they're giving so much flexibility to the states that it's really hard to push back on. And really what Gina McCarthy is saying is, like, you get to choose what you want to invest in. Like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. And, yeah. and that's so powerful because it make it forces that conversation. Well, what's interesting to me is like, you know, I talked to Barbara Lockwood um, from Arizona Public Service who just came back from the Dallas meeting. Yeah, I saw her there. And everything's on the table. Rate design's on the table. The way in which they actually meet their customers' needs are on the table. You know, figuring out how to accommodate renewables is on the table. It used to be like we're just going to fight this tooth and nail. Now it's sort of like we sort of have to figure out what is the best way to accommodate all this technology because it's not just – their customers, quote unquote, that want this. It's their customer that wants this, which is the regulator. The regulator is now saying, we want this in our own house. I've got a cousin who has a business who wants to do this. Why is it that I can't, as a regulator, figure out a way for my cousin to be able to do this? Yeah, I think it's tremendously empowering for them, really. Um, and I think, you know, the one of the really big problems is that regulators, you know, generally have between two and three, maybe four years of experience at the most. I mean, there are a few that have been there longer, but honestly, they're all pretty green uh, and green in the kind of the new sense of the word. And so a lot of them, you know, there's this constant re-education every time they come in. But it does seem like because, as you say, Jigger, on the grassroots level, things are happening, they come in knowing 
knowing a bit more than they used to come in knowing. That's because they listen to this podcast. Yeah, that's right. They're all <laughs> subscribing. Damn straight. All right. Let's tell our listeners something they don't know and wrap up the show here. Catherine, we'll start with you. Yes, I have to give a shout out to my colleague, which I did last week too, but a different one, Jeff Kramer, who's from Wisconsin. He just called me from Stevens Point, as a matter of fact, for anybody who's ever been there. He had just met with the Midwest Renewable Energy Association to get a real download on what's happening in Wisconsin, which is that We Energies, which is the typical big utility that everybody would expect this from, but also Madison Gas and Electric, which is generally the progressive, clean you know, utility that's in Madison, which is Considered, you know, it's pretty aligned with the environmental community and clean energy communities. Um, just um, put in proposed in a rate case um, number one to not allow third party ownership of solar, and number two to have fixed costs of between eight to ten dollars a month, increasing within four years to up to seventy dollars a month. So, as Jeff said, uh, the highways are packed with solar installers fleeing the state. Um, the, another problem is the PSC just announced that it would end their rebate program of $400 a KW by the end of the year. Um, and the Public Service Commission is going to vote on this rate case. Now, remember, Scott Walker uh, appointed all of these uh, commissioners. And, you know, the hope is that this is actually going to become an election issue so that you know, so that if if they can get someone other than Scott Walker and maybe they can change the commission, but it's not looking good right now uh, for solar. So I know the Alliance for Solar Choice and those folks are all coming in to the state. In the streets, fleeing the state, they should be in the streets outside I know. the commission. They should. They, I think they are. Well, I think they're all actually coming into the state. Well, what's amazing to me is Matt Newman's a good friend of mine um, in Madison, and he actually is an active um, investor in solar projects. Their family has had um, a home building business for a long time, and his business has never been bigger in Wisconsin. He's doing Lutheran churches, all sorts of other stuff. It's, I just find it so fascinating that all of these constituents like Lutherans and others are all coming together be- around their love for distributed generation at the exact time that, you know, these utilities basically are deliberately trying to piss them off. Yeah, there's probably a greater Lutheran vote there than there is here in uh, Washington, D.C. as well. (laughs) Indeed. Jigger, tell us something we don't know. So previously I talked about um, fleet ownership as a service, and a lot of folks emailed me saying, hey, you know, you sort of whetted our appetite, but you didn't tell us enough. Um, So one of the companies that I've been following just went public, uh, not publicly traded, but like public with their stealth moves, uh, called Vision Fleet Capital. And Vision Fleet Capital um, just signed their first deal. I don't think they've announced that yet, so I can't tell you who that is, but but it's actually they just did. It's Indianapolis. But it but they're basically going in, helping these um, communities who can't borrow more money to convert their fleet to electric vehicles, convert their fleet to electric vehicles and save a bunch of money on gasoline and diesel. Very cool. So I was at O-Power's offices for a few hours yesterday, meeting with a bunch of members of their executive team and going over the company's new products and services, many of which aren't ready to be released publicly. And it was pretty eye-opening for me. I came away from the meeting feeling pretty positive about where the company's headed. So I don't like to fawn over companies, but honestly, I think it's important to give credit where credit's due. And they walked me through a lot of data related to their behavioral demand response programs that are scaling up, how consumers are reacting to different messages and experiences that are delivered by Opower through the utility the company's uh, like back-end customization tools for their utility customers and some of their 
customer interactions with the smart thermostat stuff that they're rolling out and their mobile app, pretty much all of it. And I came away feeling like the company has a very clear direction where it's headed. And, you know, that is to make the utilities interactions with customers as targeted and seamless as they can. And not just improving energy efficiency, but improving operational efficiencies, which is becoming a bigger uh, piece of Opower's core business. So my biggest criticism about Opower has historically been that they're this really safe option, right? You know, they appeal to regulators because they can offer consistent 2% savings. They appeal to the utilities because they want to you know, the utilities want to make it look like they're doing something cool, but it's still very incremental. And Opower makes them look very cool without having to do anything drastic. But I will say after taking a look at what the company's new customer engagement platform looks like and is capable of, like I'm, I'm pretty bullish on their plans. And it's not just a company sending out notifications about energy use on a piece of paper or in an email anymore. I mean, they're putting some really powerful stuff in place to remake and I think reinforce the relationship between utilities and their customers. So I'm going to be writing about that in a coming story. And and then there will be some off the record stuff that I can talk about in the coming months. And so like they admit themselves how tough this business can be selling into the utility sector. But I feel like if there's any company that sort of feels inevitable in this space, and I really don't use that word lightly, I think Opower is up there for me. And we talk a lot about about how the utilities are disconnecting from their customers, or at least there's this threat to disconnect from their customers. And I think Opower is really attempting to fill that gap in a meaningful way. You know, their original name was Positive Energy. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I mean, I, I love Opower. I still am not sure whether they actually own the relationship with their customer. The utilities have to approve every single thing that they say to the utility customer because the only reason they have those names and addresses and phone numbers and email addresses is because a utility paid for and gave it to them. Whereas people like SolarCity and STEM and other people are actually getting those names and addresses and phone numbers directly so they can sell them whatever they want, whenever they want, without permission. Yeah, but I don't think Opower really cares about that. I mean, there are so many interactions that can take place with the utility's direction that they can make money off of that I, I think it's a nice niche for them to be in. So yeah, there are plenty of other third-party service providers who may have a little bit more flexibility, but Opower seems pretty comfortable in that space and sees enough room for growth in establishing that new interaction between the customer and the utility that, that they can make a lot of money off of it. And I think their big play is data. They've just got so much data. Yeah, they walked me through a lot of what they can do with the back-end information, and it's pretty incredible. That marks the end of the show, folks. Thanks so much for being here, and a huge thank you to our sponsor, eGage Systems. For more information on stories we talked about in the show, go over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast for links, and you can always check out back episodes there and subscribe to the show through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Swell Radio. If you want to contact us, send me an email. I, of course, always send it around to the rest of the team. It's Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. Catherine Hamilton, have a lovely weekend. Always Thanks, a pleasure. you too. Yes, it's beautiful here in D.C. right now. It's that polar vortex. Is it the polar vortex yet? Yeah, supposedly. Yeah, well, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> Jigger Shaw, have fun in Arizona. Don't ruffle too many feathers. Enjoy your trip. Ah, I won't. You know me. I have no reputation for ruffling feathers. (laughs) (laughs)
<laughs> Particularly with Arizona Public Service. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. Thanks for being here. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.